Welcome to Put Your Heart Into It, the HVC podcast centered around educating providers and staff about common clinical scenarios so that we can better treat our patients. Podcasts on this account are meant for educational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical diagnoses or advice. If you have any clinical symptoms or medical questions, please consult a licensed healthcare provider. Let's get started on this month's podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the HVC podcast. Our goal is to try to release one podcast every month. So I'm a little behind, but we're going to do one today, which probably could be a two part about atrial fibrillation. Um, This is the first part sort of looking at our approach to new onset atrial fibrillation and possibly talking about ablation. And the second part is a subject in itself, which would be antiarrhythmic therapy. So I'd like to introduce somebody who needs no introduction, Dr. Carlos Kali Muller. He is the electrophysiologist of HVC. And um, yeah, if you want to tell us a little about about yourself. Good morning, everybody. So I practice electrophysiology, which is a specialty for rhythm treatment. Uh, specializing in devices and, of course, atrial fibrillation, including medical therapy and invasive therapy for it. So we're going to start with this discussion now. Yeah, I think a couple of questions that came from one of the nurse practitioners was, you know, we see, we see patients either in the office or the hospital. Uh, um, I think the initial approach would be if you see somebody outpatient with new onset new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, and you may not know when it began. What is your approach to this kind of patient? So my discussion goes in two ways. The first thing I discuss is about the risk of a stroke in patients with atrial fibrillation. And I base the decision on anticoagulation for that based on risk factors. And uh, specifically, I use the CHATS VASCA score for that. So if the score is three for women or two for men, that's a class one indication for anticoagulation, and I strongly advise patients to go with it. If the CHATS VASCA score, though, is two for women or one for men, then I carefully discuss the risk and benefits of it, and then offer them anticoagulation, although I do point out that the evidence behind anticoagulation is not as strong as in the other group. And if the CHATS VASCA score is zero for men or only one for women, I just mention anticoagulation, but I usually avoid using that in those uh, young patients. Then that's the first arm of my discussion, which I think is the main one in atrial fibrillation. Then the second arm is talking about their symptoms. So how much they feel the atrial fibrillation, how fast the atrial fibrillation goes in them, and then how is the heart function in those patients? Depending on all those, I choose the best treatment strategy if it's either going to be just rate control with medications that we all know about, or if I'm gonna try more aggressively to get them back into normal rhythm. Mm -hmm. I think when I see these patients too, um, I make sure that they, you order echo, um, stress test, usually not my initial test, unless obviously you have anginal symptoms or maybe a low ejection fraction. Uh, we get all the regular labs, 
because obviously metabolic issues, even as an outpatient, can cause atrial fibrillation, uh, anemia, electrolyte abnormalities. Plus, if you're going to use um, anticoagulation or even antiplatelets, um, you need to really make sure it's safe. The hemoglobin's not low. The platelets are reasonable. At least, you know, even between 50 and 100 platelets, I'd be, I'm careful. Over 100, you should be fine with anticoagulation. I always check a TSH, um, and that's looking at the thyroid because hyperthyroid can lead to atrial fibrillation. And, you know, you be, once in a while, you do pick that up. Not always. Using the older folks, it's not from that. Hypothyroid, I think unless it's very extreme, really shouldn't cause atrial fibrillation. Hyperthyroid, Graves' disease, yeah, that's, um, that, that's something that is uncommon, but you don't want to miss it. Um, one thing, you know, I, I see is people are on anticoagulation, and yes, they might have a higher or borderline CHADS VAS score. You may do something to get them back into sinus, whether it be cardioversion or meds or ablation. Carlos, when would you stop anticoagulation? Um, and if you did stop it, would you keep them on just aspirin? That's a great question. So the decision for me to stop anticoagulation is really based on the Chad's vascular score, on the risk factors. If the patient ever had a stroke and they have atrial fibrillation and they had an ischemic stroke in the past, I would continue with anticoagulation. If the patient strongly wants to come off anticoagulation in those cases, and say they underwent an ablation procedure and they haven't had any atrial fibrillation in over six months, one thing we could offer sometimes is offer them a loop recorder implant to monitor for long-term atrial fibrillation for years. And once they get the loop recorder in, we can talk about stopping the anticoagulation, but if we ever see any event on the loop, then we go back on it. That's what I offer. And on patients, I'll be honest, the guidelines don't recommend aspirin anymore for stroke prevention uh, for atrial fibrillation. But in those patients in whom I do stop the anticoagulation, uh, I do recommend them to go on a baby aspirin every day. Yeah, I, I've done a lot of loops on these type of patients after ablation. I usually keep the anticoagulation, Eliquis, or Xeralto, or Coumadin, or whatever, for about three months, even with the loop. I check it a few times before I stop. So just when I put the loop in, I don't immediately stop the, the agent. Um, I think that's the safest way. You got about three years with a loop in terms of battery life. And, you know, and not surprisingly, at least probably about 30 to 50% of them have recurrent atrial fibrillation on the loop. So it's a very, um, I think the word I use with patients, it's a very stubborn condition, no matter what we do. Um, Carlos, what would you, how would you treat atrial flutter different from atrial fibrillation? Well, atrial flutter, the most common is typical atrial flutter, which is a spinning around the tricuspid valve. We call it cavo tricuspid ismus atrial flutter. That's a curable condition. What I do tell patients, though, and we've seen that multiple times, I think we all have seen that in the office, is that up to 20%, if not more, of people that have atrial flutter will also have atrial fibrillation at some point in their lives. So 
Based on risk factors, we choose anticoagulations identically like we do for atrial fibrillation. But then for the treatment of atrial flutter, though, I am a little bit more aggressive in offering them a a permanent alternative, which in the ways of ablation, instead of trying medications to rate control, as, as we all see, atrial flutter is extremely difficult to rate control because it's a very organized rhythm, or trying antiarrhythmics, which have an inner risk on, on themselves, what I, what I offer them is doing an ablation procedure. Because if you prove that it is typical CTI flutter, the chance of success of an ablation is beyond 95% that the flutter will never come back. Okay, understanding though, I do tell them that there is a chance that you may have atrial fibrillation in the future. One every five patients with flutter may develop atrial fibrillation. So in those patients in whom I ablate atrial flutter and I get rid of it, after I keep them on anticoagulation for a month after the ablation, and then what I typically do is I give them, if the CHATS FASC is reasonably low, which I would say less than three, then I offer them an, an event monitor, usually for seven days. Some people prefer to do it for 30 days just to be safe, but I say seven days is enough. And then if I see no arrhythmia in that monitor, I stop anticoagulation at that time. However, though, if the CHATS VASC is very high and say they had a stroke in the past, in those patients, I don't, I just go straight to offering them a loop recorder, just like I do for atrial fibrillation. And I keep them on anticoagulation until I get the loop recorder in. And as Dr. Bad mentions, my approach is once I get the loop in, I stop anticoagulation but also it's not a bad idea to wait for a month or two and then stop in anticoagulation in those patients. I think that's great. Carlos, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, obviously, he's the expert and I'm still sort of, you know, clinical electrophysiology, not procedure based. But the atrial flutter is, you know, right sided, right atrium, typically somewhat easier to get to a focal area that's causing it, pathway, you'd say, and the atrial fibrillation is on the left atrium and harder to get to. You had to go across the intraatrial septum. You had a puncture. Only certain hospitals you could do this. And it involves the five pulmonary veins, so not as focal, more of a, I would say, almost like a systemic disease of the left atrium. You're absolutely correct. The ablation procedure for atrial flutter I don't want to say it's one of the easiest, but I would say it's one of the less involved or less risky ablations that we do in electrophysiology. As you say, it spins around the tricuspid valve, so the way the ablation goes is we do it under conscious sedation, insert two IVs to the right femoral vein, and we put a catheter across the tricuspid valve into the coronary sinus, and then essentially with a radiofrequency ablation catheter, we burn a line connecting the tricuspid annulus to the IVC, breaking the CTI flutter circuit. Uh, the ablation for atrial flutter takes about an hour, sometimes less than that, sometimes can take a bit more if there is some, uh, some we call them rich uh, obstructing the IVs, the connection between the IVC and the tricuspid annulus. But again, the ablation procedure for atrial flutter is safe. It doesn't need general anesthesia and uh, it doesn't need full anticoagulation during the procedure because we do not dwell inside the left atrium. Compared to the atrial fibrillation ablation, which is a bit more involved, it's under general anesthesia. 
And, uh, and of course, you have to go into the left atrium, go transeptally, start full systemic anticoagulation at that time, yes, like when you do a PCI. And so it's a much more, it's, it's a bit more risky procedure in that sense. So atrial flutter, that's why in atrial flutter, I'm much more liberal in offering it to anybody that has it honestly. I've done that ablation in people who are 85 plus years old, but an atrial fibrillation ablation, though the recovery of it can be a little bit more tricky, a little bit longer, and it's a bit more risky, yes, from the anesthesia standpoint too. Yeah, I think that's 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 a great discussion. Um, probably have time for one other quick discussion. And now that I see this, this probably is like a almost like a three part podcast. You know, this is the introduction, maybe talking more about procedures, and then maybe a third part talking about. Um, antiarrhythmics. Um, but um, yeah, this is a great subject, I think. Um, and we all need to know more about it. It's just getting so common. Um, what What's different about the inpatient treatment of atrial fibrillation? A lot of this, you know, obviously covers inpatient and outpatient. I think of the inpatient, especially with, you know, COVID and, you know, all the people getting admitted, not just with COVID, but the aging population, heart failure, COPD, chronic medical problems, a lot of different surgeries in older population now. Um, what do you, how do we treat differently on the inpatient? I think of it as sometimes temporary because, you know, it's because of the underlying illness, the acute illness. I totally agree with you. I think the vast majority of people we see in the hospital with atrial fibrillation, there is something underneath going on that we have to focus on treating first and then focusing on the atrial fibrillation. That my typical approach for atrial fibrillation in the hospital is first trying to rate control it with agents, diltiazem, metoprolol, tridigoxin, short term, try to get it controlled, get the patient to be asymptomatic from it and treat the underlying condition. If, those, if that approach does not work, then you can escalate to antiarrhythmics and I think it's safer to try something short term like a miodarone for instance in the hospital trying to control their rhythm. In some people, you need to do like a TE cardio version, have the same discussion about anticoagulation, and then get them out of the hospital to see one of us in the office. And if they are a good candidate for other treatments, or if we can change them other onto a different kind of antiarrhythmic, we can have all those discussions in the office, I think much more safely compared to while we're dealing with other acute illnesses in the hospital. Carlos, say somebody's, um, you know, doesn't have a lot of medical problems or just maybe a couple of things, definitely no heart failure or stroke, um, lower CHADS VAS score. They have, just for example, say they have COVID, they get atrial fibrillation, they're on some oxygen, they come off of it, they're staying in sinus, whether it be with meds or cardioversion, they're on one of the, you know, the agents, a NOAX, then when would and they stay in sinus, would you consider stopping the anticoagulation? Yes, if, if, if there is a clear, I think, precipitating factor, such as an, an acute uh, pulmonary illness like COVID, or like you mentioned, hyperthyroidism, things that you can easily, you know, not easily, but you can reverse, then you can, you can discuss a stopping anticoagulation. And I would say, you know, once atrial fibrillation is there, you have to have that careful discussion as you said, it's a very stubborn rhythm. So at some point, it will likely come back. So you always have to monitor for it. And uh, if the chat's vasque is low, it's okay to stop and monitor them clinically. 
But if the Chats Vasque is higher, though, then that's a separate uh, discussion, though, because then that's also when long-term monitoring, I think, comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is, this is great. I think that um, that's about 15 minutes. I know my attention span is only about 15 minutes, so I think we'll sort of wind up this sort of episode and maybe do two other parts on atrial fibrillation, maybe one on antiarrhythmics, maybe one on the procedures. AFib ablation is rapidly improving. Watchman is a new thing too. There's probably other stuff out there too. And sometimes people need pacemakers. So uh, thanks a lot, Carlos. And um, any summaries you have? No, no, thank you guys. I think yeah, atrial fibrillation is such a broad, such a broad subject that I think it's nice to, nice to divide it into different parts. Probably we should talk about antiarrhythmics in a single in a single kind of discussion and then have a discussion about invasive treatments, the different options of ablation, as you mentioned, pacemaker, AV node ablation. And we can also talk in that moment about uh, options for anticoagulation, such as the Watchman device and the amulet device and those uh, new things. All right. Thank you, everyone.